We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 84 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Gary Clark episode. It is Tuesday, June 15th, 2021, a day after one of the most vile dunks that you'll ever see. NBA playoffs, Monday night, the Los Angeles Clippers, a 118-104 win over the Utah Jazz to even that Western Conference semifinal series at two. Less than two minutes left in the second quarter, Kawhi Leonard A filthy, nasty, driving, right-handed slam right in the face of Derek Favors. As Ian Eagle of TNT called the play, a Kawhi light. If you saw it, you know of what I speak. The very definition of getting posterized. No regard for human life, as the great Kevin Harlan would say. With no regard for human life! Yes, no regard for human life. That's got to be some feeling as an NBA player when you posterize another NBA player the way that Kawhi posterized Favors on Monday night. And conversely, how about the play from Favors' perspective? That's about as bad as it gets. And I know if you're playing the NBA, you get dunked on like those things happen. But man, that is a snapshot in time that won't be going bye-bye anytime soon. What's worse, getting posterized as Derek Favors got posterized by Kawhi on Monday night or getting run over in a football game like, say, Laurent Landry got run over by Brandon Jacobs years ago. Discuss amongst yourselves. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast, which I am proud to say has surged up the rankings again. Like Kawhi ascending into the sky, this podcast continues to fly. Hey, that rhymes. Uh, But up to number 23 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Yes, number 23 in the country. Michael Jordan's number, appropriate because Monday was the 23-year anniversary of Jordan shot over Brian Russell in Game 6 of the 1998 NBA Finals. So on the 23-year anniversary for maybe the most famous shot by number 23, this podcast rises to number 23 in the country. You couldn't have scripted it any better. But thank you for your continued support, your downloading, your subscribing, your rating, your reviewing. It all means a lot. 
It all does a lot. And so, as a thank you to you, I have a special guest on the show, Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic DC. He and one of our good pals, Washington football team insider Ben Standing of The Athletic DC, co-authored an article that came out on Monday about the process by which the Washington football team will arrive at a permanent name. There's a lot to the process. I get into that with Tarek, as well as whether the team internally already has the name that the team wants and when we should expect the permanent name to be announced. And I talk Caps with Tarek. He is the Athletic DC's Capitals insider. Do the Caps now regret not keeping Barry Trotz after winning the Stanley Cup in 2018? Are the Caps going to trade Evgeny Kuznetsov? Who might the Caps leave unprotected in the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken? Tarek and I cover all of that and more. Coming up next segment, the lessons of the Washington football team's 2021 offseason. What have we learned from what Washington has and hasn't done this offseason? I'll talk Nationals, a 3-2 win for them over the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park on Monday night in game one of a three-game series, a game that featured another Schwarbaum. Kyle Schwarber is killing it as the Nats leadoff batter these days, as yes, Davey Martinez is proud of his boys on this Tuesday. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey, thank you. I'll also talk Orioles, for whom the streak continues. The franchise record road losing streak now at 16 games off a 4-3 loss at the Cleveland Indians on Monday night. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the podcast, again, number 23 in the country. If you have a practice or business that you want to grow, let the power of the pod work for you. Hit me up, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this tweet from Adam M. Shapiro off our Ryan Fitzpatrick conversation with NFL analytics expert Sam Hoppin on Monday's installment of the podcast, episode 83. Hey, Galdi, Fitz P's, I like that nickname, Fitz P's top 10 QBR in 19 and 20, but game stats show a lot not to like. Many interceptions greater than touchdown passes games, many losses, and few great games, says he won't change, i.e. throw 50-50 balls into tight windows. He's not concerned with ball protection. I'm concerned now. Thoughts? Well, Adam, I hear you. But personally, I will take a few more picks if they come with many more big plays. SharpFootballStats.com tracks explosive passing play rate, which is explosive passing plays divided by total passing plays and explosive passing play is defined as a passing play for at least 15 yards. Washington last regular season, number 31 out of 32 NFL teams in explosive passing play rate at 6.15%. That is terrible. That needs to change. Fitzpatrick can help to change that. He is an aggressive unapologetic downfield thrower of the football, the likes of which Washington hasn't had in way too long. And when it comes to the interceptions, just know this, Fitzpatrick over his two regular seasons with the Miami Dolphins had an interception percentage of 2.73. Interception percentage is interceptions divided by pass attempts. The league average interception percentage over the last two regular seasons was 2.26. So yes, Fitzpatrick's interception percentage was worse than the league average. But NFL teams over these last two regular seasons averaged about 560 pass attempts per season. So over the course of 560 pass attempts, 
Fitzpatrick, if you apply his interception percentage through 15.3 interceptions versus a league average quarterback throwing 12.7 interceptions. So more interceptions for Fitzpatrick, but it's not like a truckload more. It's 15.3 versus 12.7. I don't know about you. I'm willing to live with a few more picks if they come with many more explosive passing plays. Now, you got to provide the explosive passing plays, but knowing the way Fitzpatrick plays the game, which is, again, as an aggressive downfield thrower of the football, I do expect those explosive passing plays to come. Of course, all of this presumes that Ryan Fitzpatrick will be Washington's QB1, which I still do think will be the case, although I do think it's more of a conversation than people have made it out to be. Fitzpatrick, of course, a centerpiece acquisition by the Washington football team this offseason. What did we learn about our football team this offseason? All right, so life, if nothing else, is about learning. We are always learning. We hopefully know more with each passing day, and yet we never know enough. One of the undeniable realities of life. All right, enough with the philosophy. The Washington football team's 2021 offseason isn't completely over, but it is mostly over. It may well be that not another significant roster move occurs until training camp, which will begin on July 27th in Richmond. So what have we learned about the Washington football team this offseason? You have words and you have actions. I'm a big believer in there being far more meaning in the actions as opposed to the words. We now have about five months of actions by the Washington football team since the end of the team's 2020 season with that Saturday night loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field. Yes, that was five months ago now. Time flies when you're having fun. What have we learned? What have Washington's actions over the last five months told us? So here to me are five things that we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. Number one, we learned that Washington very much saw its 2020 passing game as a weakness. And yes, this falls under the category of, as my three-year-old son would say, duh, (laughs) but this is an important point. The worst thing by far about the Washington football team in the 2020 regular season was the team's passing game. Washington last regular season, dead last in the NFL in passing offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric. Washington last regular season, dead last in the NFL in team total QBR per ESPN. Washington quarterbacks last regular season totaled 16 touchdown passes. 16! That's it. 16 touchdown passes versus 16 interceptions, by the way. The passing game needed to get better, and Washington this offseason aggressively attacked making the passing game better. There were no delusions of, well, we won the NFC East, so was the passing game really that bad? Uh, It was really that bad. Washington has had no qualms about this. Alex Smith released, Ryan Fitzpatrick signed, and remember how early in free agency, Washington struck a deal with Fitzpatrick. Monday night, March 15th, the first day of the NFL's legal tampering period, that was when the news broke that Washington had agreed on a contract with Fitzpatrick. Washington tried to trade for Matthew Stafford, only wanted to give up so much to the Detroit Lions for him, got outbid by the Los Angeles Rams, and then pivoted to Fitzpatrick. NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB on March 16th tweeted that after Washington struck out on Stafford, Fitzpatrick 
became Washington's target. And of course, the upgrading of the passing game didn't stop with getting Fitzpatrick. Washington signed two receivers in Curtis Samuel and Adam Humphreys. Samuel gives Washington a legit number two to Terry McLaurin. Humphreys, presumably, is Washington's new slot receiver. Again, no delusions. Well, Stephen Sims, he was hurt last season. Maybe he'll bounce back in 2021. Hey, maybe he does, but Washington isn't just counting on that. And so Washington signed Humphreys and Washington with a second, third round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft took North Carolina receiver Diami Brown. Will Washington's passing game be better? It would be hard to be worse. We'll all be disappointed if it isn't appreciably better. Five things we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. Number two, we learned that Ron Rivera isn't interested in overspending for a QB1. Now, we'll see if Ron's proven right on this. Ron Rivera, in the week that followed the 2021 draft, opened up about the way that he views the quarterback position. Essentially said that, yes, it's great if you have a Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady, but recent NFL history tells us that you also can make a Super Bowl with a Nick Foles, a Jimmy Garoppolo, a Jared Goff. And so if you don't have close to complete certainty that a guy for whom you're giving up a boatload of assets is going to be great, then don't do the deal. This, I think, explains why Ron was only willing to go so far to trade for Stafford. This, I think, explains why Washington didn't trade up in the first round of the draft to take, say, Justin Fields. If you don't love a quarterback in an NFL draft, then you shouldn't give up what's necessary to trade up to take that quarterback. Washington, I believe, liked Fields, but didn't love Fields. Otherwise, the team would have topped the deal that the Chicago Bears did with the New York Giants. Remember, Washington had the number 19 pick in the first round. The Bears had the number 20 pick in the first round. The Bears traded up to number 11 and took Fields. And the price that the Bears paid to do this was significant, but not unreasonable. The Bears traded their 2021 first round pick, number 20 overall, a 2021 fifth round pick, a 2022 first round pick, and a 2022 fourth round pick to the Giants for their 2021 first round pick, number 11 overall. So the Bears to get Fields spent two ones, a four, and a five. That's a bargain if Fields ends up becoming a franchise quarterback. We'll see if Ron has proven right on this, but he's definitely right about this recent phenomenon of non-elite quarterbacks making deep postseason runs. That's undeniable. And as I've talked about, there is a market inefficiency that Washington exploited in signing Fitzpatrick to a mere one-year, $10 million contract off him having been really good over these last few seasons. Top 10 in the NFL and ESPN's total QBR each of the last two seasons. In a time in which so many teams are giving up a ton to get potential franchise quarterbacks, Washington signed Fitzpatrick to a one-year, $10 million contract for his age 39 season. Washington is zigging while other teams are zagging. Generally speaking, that is what smart teams do. Five things that we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. Number three, we learned that Ron Rivera has zero attachment to people who have been with Washington for years. One of the recurring themes on this podcast, this Washington football team offseason, has been the Ron Rivera godfather-like baptism of fire. The elimination of those in the way of the new head of the family, the new Don, Don Ron. This really started last offseason, but boy, did it continue this offseason. Washington told the franchise's all-time regular season sacks leader, Ryan Kerrigan, as free agency started that the team was not interested in re-signing him, he gone. Washington released Morgan Moses, despite him having played in every game for Washington over the previous six seasons, he gone. Washington released the man who authored the greatest comeback in sports history, Alex Smith, he gone. And those are just the players behind the scenes, a ton of maneuvering 
over the last few months. Vice President of Player Personnel Kyle Smith, who had been with Washington since joining the team as an intern in 2010, gone. Paul Kelly, who had been Washington's Director of Football Operations since February 2010, gone. Washington parted ways with three top people in the scouting department in Jeff Scott, Cole Spencer, and Brian Zekis. Scott had been Washington's assistant director of pro scouting slash advanced coordinator. He joined Washington as a scouting intern in December 2011. Gone. Spencer had been a national scout for Washington, joined the team in 2010 as a scouting intern. Gone. Zekis had been a personnel coordinator and pro scout for Washington, which he joined as an administrative assistant in July 2014. Gone. Washington and Elliot German mutually parted ways. German had served as a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer for Washington since joining it in 2008. Gone. And on and on we can go. Like the scenes late in the movie The Godfather of Michael Corleone exacting his revenge and eliminating the enemies of the Corleone family. Don Ron one by one, eliminated those he no longer wanted around. I have no problem with this. You just hope that the right decisions were made. Five things that we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. Number four, we learned that depth, athleticism, and yes, position flex were three things that Washington wanted more of. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Thank you. Now, look, these three things are not, you know, groundbreaking revolutionary concepts, depth, athleticism and positional flexibility. But these three things very clearly were three things that Washington wanted more of this offseason. Depth was especially added along the offensive line at receiver and in the secondary. Athleticism was heightened via signing Curtis Samuel and Samis Reyes and a 2021 Washington draft class filled with athletic freaks. I've talked about this RAS metric. Relative athletic score was developed by Kent Lee Platty, a Navy veteran and the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network. The idea behind a relative athletic score, you grade a player's measurements and NFL scouting combines last pro day metrics on a 0 to 10 scale compared to his peer group. So many of Washington's draft picks excelled in terms of relative athletic score. Jamin Davis, Samuel Cosme, Derek Forrest, William Bradley King, Shaka Tony, Dayami Brown certainly stands out in terms of speed. And then with, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Two of Washington's more notable free agent acquisitions offer position flex, right? Curtis Samuel offers position flex and that he can serve as both a pass catcher and ball carrier. Bobby McCain offers position flex and that he can play both free safety and nickel corner. Jamin Davis offers position flex and that the belief is that he'll be able to play all three linebacker positions. Position flex. Yes, we got it. Five things that we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. Number five, we learned that Washington did not view the tight end and linebacker positions as the priorities that so many others did. For all of the talk about these two positions, again, follow the actions of the team. What do those actions tell us? Let's start at tight end. It was as obvious as could be that Washington, which we've already established values depth, needed more depth at tight end. Logan Thomas finished the 2020 regular season tied with J.D. McKissick for number two on Washington at targets at 110. Washington's other tight ends, Jeremy Sprinkle, Marcus Ball, and Tameric Hemingway combined for just six targets. I mean, what a discrepancy, right? Logan Thomas last regular season, 110 targets. Every other tight end on Washington's roster combined last regular season, six targets. And yet Washington, despite having all of the salary cap space, was not at all a play-a-play-a 
in free agency at tight end. Didn't sign or seemingly go after Hunter Henry. Didn't sign or seemingly go after Jonu Smith. Washington this offseason has signed Samis Reyes, a guy who has never played football at any meaningful level. Dion Yelder and Ricky Seals-Jones. Those are who Washington signed at tight end this offseason. In addition to, yes, taking the Boise State tight end, John Bates, in the fourth round of the 2021 draft. Now, look, maybe one or more of these guys ends up killing it. You never know. But if Washington was that concerned about tight end depth, you would have seen more done, or at the very least, more urgency displayed, and you didn't. Also, linebacker, for all of the talk about linebacker, going back to last season, during which Ron Rivera was publicly critical of the linebackers, what happened this offseason? Yes, Washington took Jamin Davis in the first round of the draft, but that's it in terms of major additions at linebacker, even though one of Washington's top linebackers from last season, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, left for the Houston Texans via free agency. What did Washington do in free agency at linebacker? Signed David Mayo and Joe Walker. Who? What? Exactly. Now, it is true that some of the top free agents to be at linebacker ended up resigning prior to the start of free agency. Levante David resigned with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Matt Milano resigned with the Buffalo Bills. But there have been others who Washington could have gone after. Washington didn't go after those guys as best as we can tell. The plan at linebacker seems to be Jamin Davis, Cole Holcomb, John Bostic, and Khalid Hudson. So there you have it. Five things that we have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. There may be many more things. You tell me what I missed. You tell me what you have learned about the Washington football team this offseason. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, so a very interesting article came out on The Athletic DC on Monday. It was about the search by the Washington football team for a permanent name. The 2021 season will be the second consecutive season of the team being the Washington football team. And we do believe that the 2021 season will be the last season of the team being the Washington football team. What goes into the process? Where might the process be taking us? Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, one of the authors of the article, Tariq El-Bashir. He, of course, covers the Capitals for the Athletic DC, and I will be talking some caps with him, but he at one point did cover the skins. Tariq, uh, was it like riding a bike, riding about the football team again? It is. Uh, you know, it's funny. I actually live in, in Loudoun County, not too far from the facility. So I drive by it on a daily basis. So I'm always always thinking about it. I mean, you know, even though hockey is my, my uh, you know, number one love in the sport that I've covered the most over the last two decades, like you said, I, I've covered football um, for three seasons, you know, including RG3's rookie year and um, uh, the year after uh, the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. So I've, I've got some pretty good familiarity with it. So this was a really unique article. You and Ben Standig talked to branding and marketing experts. You hosted focus groups. You hired an artist. Uh, What are your principal takeaways from writing this piece? Naming a team or renaming a team, especially one that's already established and has won Super Bowls and elicits the the you know the love or the hate the way the way the Washington football team does in this area and nationally. It's an impossible job. I'm just so glad I don't have to do it. Uh, you know, talking to these experts, I mean, you know, they were you know, going through names. And, you know, we talked to a number of stakeholders from, you know, retired players to, uh, you know, people who are in the business, people who are in media. And, I mean, everyone had a different idea for what the team should be called or, or even, you know, what, where you should be looking for, for a name. 
Um, so just the, the, the disparate, you know, kind of opinions as to, you know, um, what direction this should, should take. I, I, my head exploded. I mean, I'm, I'm very much a simple guy. I'm a sports writer. I like to, I had the same thing for breakfast every morning. Like, you know, going through all the possibilities, like my head exploded multiple times as we we're trying to figure this out. And at the end of it all, we, I still don't think there was a good, an answer that I really liked. Well, you know how this is going to go. Whatever the new name ends up being, so many people are going to complain. So many people are going to find the name to be unpopular. So the hope is that it's not unpopular. The the, the hope is that people come to accept it and that they come up with a name that the vast majority of the fan base can accept. And I I think just, you know, given the, the, the... the state of politics in our country and, you know, the, 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 I guess the, the two sides of whether the name is acceptable or not acceptable. I mean, it's just, it's a hot button topic. I don't think that the fan base, even right now, you know, a year after they made the name, decision to drop the name Redskins, they still haven't come to um, an agreement on whether that was the right or wrong move. So I, I think, I think the hope internally is that they'll come up with a name that, People will like originally a certain segment will like originally, and that a bigger segment will come around to liking after some time. I mean, it's just like anything, man. You know, the first time you know, I'm a car guy. You know, the first time a, a car gets redesigned and the new model gets introduced, I'm like, oh, that's so ugly. What are you doing? And then after like a month, I'm like, all right, you know what? That looks really good. Like it starts to grow on you. I think that's kind of the hope. Um, there are always going to be people who call the football team by what. They were previously called. That's just not going away. I mean, like I said, I live in Ashburn. So the number of Redskins, you know, uh, hats and jerseys and, and bumper stickers and license tags around, I mean, there's still a lot of it, you know, in town. It's not like people said, oh, well, you know, that's not the name anymore. We're just going to take all this stuff. We're going to put it all away. So, again, um, as I said, when we first got on, uh, you know, started talking today, I, there's 215 comments currently on the story. I'm scared to go in and start looking at it. <laughs> I don't blame you. So as I'm sure you know, there is a school of thought that for all of these surveys and all of this talk about fan involvement, the team has had a list of just a few realistic new names and that the new name will come from that group. In other words, the team has more or less known for a while what the new name will be. Do you believe that or not? So I've heard that as well. Um, you know, I, I believe that that's kind of how the Wizards ended up with their name. I, I remember the, the, one of the first stories I ever wrote for the Washington Post was my job as a 19-year-old like intern at the Post was to go to various bars in D.C. and ask people about the, pop, the, the, the names that were being thrown out there by A. Bullock. I believe one of them was Sea Dogs. Yeah. And, you know, come to find out, you know, many years later, they'd already settled on Wizards. Like, they had already picked what, what the name was going to be. Um, and this was all just for show. I don't think that's the case here. I do think that while there might be a short list internally, I think they're open. I think they're open. And it sounds like there are going to be a number of people um, from the organization who are going to have a say. And the one thing that I, that I also learned in reporting this piece with, with, with Ben is – you know, how many people are involved and how many layers. And, you know, I'm sure people read the story and went, oh, that's a terrible name. Well, that's not really how this works. I mean, it's that's a starting point. That's a, okay, here's 
we've settled on this as a direction. We want to go in this direction. We want to have a name that is based on geography. And then you go through another set of um, um, uh, conversations and maybe even more focus groups. And if you still don't like it, you might even go to a different agency. Like, there's a lot that goes into this. And, you know, as we said at the lead of the story, you got to get it right. You only, you, you can't change the name every year. Like, you got one opportunity if you're Dan Snyder to nail this. You nail it, people are going out and they're buying the jerseys. They're going out and they're buying the, one of those stupid things that uh, hang out of the wind, windows of cars, you know, on the side. Like, everyone's going to go and get all of that stuff. If they hate it, you know, you're already a team. Okay, they, they made the playoffs last year, but you're already a team that, you know, has, has shed a decent amount of its fan base here in, in the last um, decade or so. And uh, you might have dug yourself a little bit of a bigger hole. With Dan Snyder, how much of this is just his call? Like, at the end of the day, with him now as more of a majority owner than ever before, is this ultimately his decision, or are there many other factors that enter into what the new name ends up being? Look, he's a smart guy, and, and he's going to lean on his lieutenants and the people around him when he makes this decision, in my opinion. But at the end of the day, it's his team. He's, he's, the buck stops on his desk. I mean, he will make, in my opinion, the, the, the final call. Um, and, and that's probably how, you know, when you're making a big decision, that's probably how it should be, right? You, 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 you take all the information that you have at the time, you talk to everybody, and then you go away for a couple of days, you think about it, and you, you make your final decision, and then, uh, you know, you set into motion the, the, the other part that we didn't even have a space to get into in the story, which is just the rebranding of everything. I mean, think about how many things have to now be changed from WFT to whatever the next name is going to be. And you know what? It might be WFT again. I mean, there is a very real possibility that they stick with Washington football team, which, again, like my car analogy earlier, I hated it when it first came out. And now I'm like, it's totally different than the other 31 franchises. It really doesn't bother me that much anymore. I kind of like it. Yeah, the problem to me is that it's not a name and that locally we have to call the team Washington, which I just feel like is very distant. And it's also three syllables, so it's like kind of onerous to keep saying all the time, Washington, Washington. Like, you want that one-syllable nickname like Skins or Caps or Terps or Wiz. You don't have that with Washington as the name. So, so the, the purpose of this exercise, Al, was not to come up with a new name or even to suggest what the name should be. It was just to explain to readers what the process is like, yeah. what, what's going on at, Red, uh, at Washington football Park or whatever they call it these days, uh, right down the road from me. And the, but there, there were in, in the in the course of all these conversations and doing the reporting, there were a few that I liked. I mean, well, first of all, I think he's a WFT. When you're writing as a sports writer, it gets weird to say football team with capital F, capital T. It gets weird. But I, I like WFC, like Washington Football Club, and I also like DCFC. I, kind of, I thought that was pretty cool too. Um, there were a number of names that. I, you know, after this story took us a few months to report, you know, as we're going down the, that road, they start to grow on me a little bit. But another thing I didn't realize is, is even after you kind of settle on what you're, you want the new name to be, there are so many legal loopholes that you have to, or so many I's you have to dot and T's you have to cross. You got to make sure that that name doesn't, you don't, you're not sharing that name with a cricket team in India or, you know, that, it, let's say, I'm just as an example, Warriors, like does Golden State let you use that? I mean, there's just so many. If you do a W with a little bit of a script, does it look too much like Wisconsin? Is Wisconsin going to have an issue with that? There's so many things that have that go into this. And that's why 
And in talking to the experts, no one said, I can't believe they went into this with no plan and changed the name without having a they, they all almost to a man said it was actually a pretty good idea to hit the pause button and go, hey, listen, we're going to take some time and we're going to get it right. Yeah, I have no problem with that. I, I think you definitely want to take your time because it is so important to get this right. When do you believe that the Washington football team will announce its new name? It feels to me like it'll be sometime in the off season a year from now. That, that's, that's at least what it feels like to me in, in talking to people. And, you know, um, Ben Standing did a lot of the reporting on the on the uh, WFT side because, you know, that's his beat right now. But that was the impression I got from my conversations with him as well. Um, and again, I, you know, I, but I will also say this. The longer they go on as the Washington football team, the more I start to kind of believe that that, that might be the answer. That might be the direction they're going in here because, I mean, you know, Again, you don't want to rush into this, and you want to make sure that you choose the best possible name, but do you really want to go two years as another name before switching to it? It gets a little dicey there, I think. Yeah, Jason Wright has certainly floated some trial balloons about keeping Washington football team as a permanent name, and you don't know if he's just doing that to do that or if he's doing that with a purpose, that they are eyeing WFT as a permanent name. Because I, you know, I think about this, too. Washington rebranded a bunch of stuff with Washington football team, with WFT. Like, money has already been spent, especially like at FedEx Field, putting Washington football team and WFT on things. So are you going to now undo all of that after just doing it? Like, it kind of does feel like you wouldn't have done that if you didn't have some sense of, hey, you know what, maybe this should be the permanent name. So I I don't know Jason Wright, but I I know from what I've read and his comments, he's a very shrewd man. (laughs) He knows what he's doing. And in, in this uh, scenario, I would doubt that those trial balloons are by accident. You know, someone sticks a camera in his face and he goes, well, you know, he's, he's not shooting from the hip the way like a Jerry Jones is, right? Like he, he, he probably has a plan. And when, when those names get leaked and as we start getting closer and there are other names that get leaked, they, those are feelers. Those are, all right, what was the, what was the public reaction to that name? Uh, again, I, I'm going to keep my eye on WFT. We're talking with Tarek El-Bashir. He has co-authored a terrific piece on the process by which the Washington football team will arrive at a new name. But of course, Tarek is the Capitals insider for the Athletic DC. Can't have him on without talking at least some caps. So it's impossible right now, man, if you're a Caps fan, to watch the Stanley Cup playoffs and not shake your head at seeing Barry Trotz in the Eastern Conference Final as Islanders head coach. Since he and the Caps parted ways, he has won five playoff series. The Caps, of course, have won zero. Looking back on the Caps deciding not to pay trots after winning the Stanley Cup in 2018, is that decision as terrible as it seems to be? Is there some context we need to keep in mind here? Because right now, it's pretty painful as a Caps fan to see trots doing as he's doing and to see our Caps doing as they have done. It looks pretty bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. The, 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 the optics aren't great. But anytime you make a big decision in life, you know, wh- whatever it is, um, you know, whether it's a business decision or changing jobs or, you know, a relationship decision, all you can go by is the information that's at hand, right? You, you, you look at, you weigh your pros and cons, you kind of, you know, you think things through. And I think when that decision was made, they did it with the right intentions. This wasn't done out of anger. It wasn't like, Ah, he wants more money and more term than we're willing to give. You can go, you know, uh, let the door hit you. You know, that's, that wasn't what happened here. 
Um, what happened here was the slow degrading of a relationship between a team and a coach that it kind of unfolded over the course of a year. It began at the start of that year, when the 17-18 season, when they won the Stanley Cup, when he wasn't resigned and was allowed to go into the final year of his contract as a with a you know lame lame duck coach, which is something that's rare for a coach with Barry's resume. It just doesn't happen in pro sports that often because. You know, players know when you're a lame duck coach and, you know, other people in the organization know when you don't have when you when your power isn't quite at full strength because no one knows if you're going to be around the next year. Right. So I think he resented that. Then there was that slow start where he almost got fired in in late November and didn't, of course. Um, And then when, you know, the whole thing went down and the the bonus years were, were triggered in his contract. You know, then you're looking at analytics if you're the Capitals. You're looking at the analytics, you're going, well, the analytics say that coaches don't usually win a Stanley Cup the year after they, even though we just won it, the analytics show that they don't usually, you don't usually win it again with a guy who's been here for five years. He almost fired twice the year before. So, you know, there was some back and forth. Uh, they did exchange some numbers. I mean, it wasn't like the Caps just said, nope, that's the contract you signed, and that's what you're getting. That, that wasn't the deal they they opened the door at the end and said okay let's talk a little about the term and about the money we can come up it didn't come up anywhere near what he thought he was worth and so it was within his right to you know to to ask to be let out let out of that contract remember the capitals also let him out of that contract you know they didn't fire him um uh because there was that that um that trigger clause he actually was back under contract with the capitals i think both sides decided once they came to an impasse that it was best for them to go in in opposite directions. Now, in hindsight, it looks bad. I mean, he took a he took a Islanders team that you know is uh, doesn't really have superstars. Although Matt Barzell is becoming a, a superstar, you know Anders Lee is out right now. He he's another very good player, but does, they don't really have you know the star power of the Capitals. He's taken this this team and turned them into a defensive stalwart. And the you know he brought Mitch Korn, his trusty longtime goaltending coach, with him, and he's turned the goalies into you know super you know, into stars. Um, so yeah, it looks bad in retrospect. But again, for me personally, when whenever something like this happens in life, and I look back and I'm like, yeah, you know what, I probably should have done something different. And I do feel like internally, I think the Capitals probably wish things had turned out differently now. Um, I don't know if they regret the decision, but I, I know they probably wish things were handled with clearer eyes and maybe with a little less emotion involved when, when those decisions were made. Um, but I know with me personally, when I look back and regret something or I look back and I, I always got to say, OK, well, but I didn't know what I know now. You know, I, I didn't know that A, B and C were going to happen. And remember, he's not doing this with a team that's identical, identical to the cap. He's doing it with a whole set of new players. Right. Right. So I don't know. It's not really apples to apples to me, but you know, um, every once in a while, when the Islanders have a big win in the postseason, I have a certain friend who will text me a picture of Barry Trotz just smiling and doing this. I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we get a little chuckle out of it, but you know, um, yeah. Well, I know that it was Kirk Cousins who said to you many years ago, "You like that." I'm sure Barry Trotz says that to the Caps, at least in his own mind, with every playoff victory. You like that because Trotz is sticking it to him. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about it. I mean, he certainly, you know, and good for him. I, I'll tell you, he was a popular guy in D.C., you know, within the community. I know there are a lot of people here that are still rooting for him, even though he coaches the game. Yeah. 
All right, uh, with the Caps offseason, so much talk about Evgeny Kuznetsov. I-, I think the Caps should bring him back. I get the frustrations, but if you trade him, you're trading him at a low point in terms of his value. If we all agree that the Caps have to get faster, trading away Kuznetsov makes you slower. To say nothing of how skilled he is, what do you think the Caps are thinking internally right now with Kuznetsov? Well, I'll tell you, they, they are going to seriously consider moving him. They're going to listen. I-, I feel like there's a lot of frustration with the fact that he's underperformed since that Stanley Cup run when he was one of the best players in the, in the league, in the world, for, you know, seven or eight weeks. Uh, he hasn't really gotten back to that level. And when you have a player who's making $7.8 million in a salary cap world and the cap isn't going up the way you thought it was going to be going up because of a global pandemic, you're kind of hamstrung by this guy. And, you know, he's also had some off-the-ice you know, baggage that's been accumulating as well. Um, I wouldn't say that both sides feel like a fresh start would be beneficial, but I do feel like the Caps are going to entertain conversations. So they, they will not say, you know, if you, if you, if you called right now on, uh, um, you know, Ilya Samsonov, that conversation is probably not happening. Right? There's a young player who they have a lot of faith in. Um, they're going to listen on Chris Netsoff, and I think they should. Um, that doesn't mean he's going to get dealt. Um, I'll tell you, most of the league is up near the salary cap ceiling, and it's not going up, you know, next year. So making a deal is going to be very, very difficult. It's going to have to almost be dollar for dollar. And you know, the Caps spent a number of years trying to get a number two, number one A, number two center. You deal him now, you don't have that piece anymore. Right. And part of it makes you so good going Nicholas Backstrom, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Lars Eller, and Nick Dowd down the middle. One of those three, four pieces is now missing. Um, now, I, I've been told that the Capitals feel like it, with a healthy Lars Eller, he was not healthy this past season. He had some injury problems. He's 31 years old now. But, you know, th- there is some feeling within the organization that if if they were able to move Kuznetsov and maybe get back a number two slash three or someone who's similar to Lars Eller, they can kind of, you know, get by for a few years until, you know, um, they're able to find a permanent solution. Because remember, Nick, He's getting older too. Like number his years of being a number one are are, are dwindling as well. Um, you know, if you could go Nicholas Backstrom, Lars Eller, you know, player X, and then Nick Dowd, and you know, let's say Lars and that other guy are kind of middle six, kind of two two A two B kind of players, they might be able to get through because of the strength of their wings. Remains to be seen, but um, I I do know that. Um, I do know that they are they are going to at least have the conversation. All right, that's good. That's good intel. The expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken is on July 21st. A lot of talk about who the Caps will leave unprotected. I know Kuznetsov's name has come up. Uh, TJ Oshie's name has come up. Yeah, what, what do you think the Caps are going to do regarding the expansion draft? So I, I see a lot of fans talking about just leaving Kuznetsov exposed and therefore, the win is that you're getting rid of $7.8 million. Well, you can also win by trading them and getting assets back and getting rid of the $7.8 million. It wouldn't be good asset management to just allow him to go. If you left him unprotected, Ron Francis would be fired if he didn't take Evgeny Kuznetsov off the cat's hands. Um, uh, so that's not happening. Uh, so he will be protected. Um, there are a couple of spots where it's a little dicey, where, you know, it's okay, what are we going to do here? I would say that last 
uh, forward protection spot is going to be um, um, interesting. Now, we're assuming here, so we got to back up for a second. We're assuming that Alex Ovechkin does not resign prior to the expansion draft. If he does not resign, that means the Capitals can leave him unprotected. The Kraken's not going to take him because he's not going to sign with the Kraken. So that allows the Capitals to protect seven forwards. Um, if, if Ovi were signed, it would only be six forwards because you, you got to protect Ovi. But with him being a UFA, you don't have to protect him, and the Kraken aren't going to take him because he's not. He's just not going to go there. Now, you do run the slight risk of the Kraken coming and going, hey, here's $20 million a year, and then maybe it's like, whoa, what did you say? Say that again? But that, I, I just that's just not in the cards. I don't see that happening. Um, so it's at the bottom of, of the forward list. Nick McDowd, who's one of the best fourth-line centers, in the league, who you know uh, uh, had a really, really good season, a breakout season, career career high eleven goals, uh, one of the top ten faceoff guys in the league, saw his role grow by five minutes a game under Coach Laviolette. Do you protect Connor Sheary, who yeah his offense dried up a little bit late in the year and in the playoffs, but you know was a very efficient player who scored a lot of goals. He has a new contract at one and a half million dollars. It kicks in next year. Do you protect Daniel Sprung, who you know he didn't play very much. Uh, but when he did, he was always scoring goals. He's only making seven twenty-five next year. If you protect him, so that last spot's not going to be easy to figure out. Um, uh, and when it comes to defense, remember you can only protect three defensemen. So I mean, I think John Carlson and Dmitry Orlov are the givens. That's your first pair right there. Do you protect Brendan Dillon? I think if you let him, if you leave him exposed, I think there's a decent chance that Seattle takes him. Thirty years old. Big body. He's from that part of the world. He played for Seattle uh, in the in the Western Hockey League growing up. That's not that big a deal, but there is some connection there. You can sell that to the fan base. Um, uh, or do you leave Justin Schultz unprotected? And you leave him unprotected? I think that most expansion teams, uh, you know, would be wise to take a thirty-year-old power play, puck-moving, right-shot defenseman. Um, you know, if we can go back to the forwards for a second, I think TJ Oshie is now going to be protected. There was some speculation there um, uh, maybe a few months ago that maybe he'd be a guy because of his ties to the area. But uh, he and Brian McClellan, the general manager, have kind of put the kibosh on that. So it doesn't sound like that's going to be in the cards. I think goaltending, I think I think the smart move is you, you can only protect one of the goalies. I think you protect Ilya Samsonov because his ceiling is higher. He just when, If he gets to as good as they think he can get, he's a number one goal, goaltender. If Vanacek gets to as good as he can get, he's a backup goal. He's a good, very good backup goal. I'm not sure he's seen around the league as a starter. So, um, but again, you know, there's a player in Vanacek who only makes seven hundred sixteen thousand dollars. You need a backup goal. The Ovechkin thing to me is so interesting. If you're the Caps, it makes no sense to resign Alex before the expansion draft, right? Not at all. And they've already done this before. They did this with CJ Oshie before the Vegas draft. They left him unprotected. Knowing that he was, you know, knowing that he was not going to sign with Vegas, you know, I'm sure there was a, you know, a handshake behind closed doors that hey, this is how this is going to go. So he doesn't get taken, and then two days later, he signs a eight year contract with the Capitals. Coincidence, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a loophole. If you're going to leave loopholes, smart teams are going to are going to exploit loopholes, and so um, that's the way it, it looks like it's going to go to me. Um, they're, they're just following the blueprints they established back in 2017 with the Golden Knights. Yeah, makes total sense. Tark, always love talking with you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You can give me a call anytime, Al. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, if the Nationals aren't going to do well against the Pittsburgh Pirates, then what exactly is the point here with the Nats this season, okay? This three-game series going on for the Nats against the Pirates at Nationals Park this week, this in a lot of ways is like the ultimate test of the 2021 Nationals. Because if the Nats can't have their way with the lowly Pirates, then what hope truly is there for the Nats having themselves a good season. The Pirates entered this series with the second worst record in the National League at 23 and 41, with the worst run differential in the National League at minus 90, 29th out of 30 major league teams in team weighted runs created plus at 82, 100 is league average, and 29th out of 30 major league teams in relief pitching ERA at 553. If you can't punk the Pirates, then you have no hope. And while it wasn't easy, and I certainly wouldn't classify it as a punking, the Nats at least did win game one of this series on Monday night. A 3-2 win over the Pirates at Nationals Park. Nats now 28-35 and on the season. Nats also now are just a game below 500 at home for the season at 16-17. and Now look, this was another underwhelming performance for the Nationals offensively. Just three runs, just six hits, three walks, two of four with runners in scoring position. The game was close, and the game was looking like maybe it wasn't going to be a Nationals win for a decent part of the night. And then Kyle Schwarber happened. And how about the job that Kyle Schwarber is doing right now as the Nationals' number one batter? He was back in that leadoff spot again on Monday night, and he delivered out of that leadoff spot again on Monday night. Two for three with a homer, an RBI single, and a walk. The homer, a two-out solo homer to right field in the bottom of the seventh for a 3-2 Nats lead, so a tie-breaking home run for Kyle Schwarber. It was his fourth home run over his last three games as the Nats' number one batter. The guy's hitting bombs like crazy whenever he's batting in the leadoff spot here lately. The home run went a projected 399 feet per stat cast, and that wasn't all. Schwarber also had a one-out RBI single in the Nats' two-run third, and he worked himself a nice walk, a one-out eight-pitch walk in the bottom of the fifth, despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. Now, Davey Martinez has talked about this with Kyle Schwarber in the leadoff spot. It does seem like more of a matchup thing than just a thing to be the case game in, game out, moving forward. The ultimate test, though, of this is going to be game two against the Pirates on Tuesday night. Pittsburgh is starting a lefty in Tyler Anderson. He overall has not been good this season, an ERA of 452 
over 12 starts. This certainly would seem to be an instance in which you could start Kyle Schwarber in that number one spot. The idea with Schwarber, who's a lefty, is okay, Schwarber against righties is one thing, Schwarber against lefties is another thing. But if Schwarber is really feeling himself right now out of that number one spot, and you're facing a lefty in Anderson, who again has an ERA of 452 on the season, why not continue to ride old Schwarby? And that number one spot, I know I would. I mean, David Martinez has tinkered with his lineups like crazy so far this season. If you have something that's actually working and working quite nicely, let it ride, man. And let's see where this takes us. I mean, it's not nuts to say that Kyle Schwarber should be the Nats every game leadoff batter. He does have a history of posting some high on base percentages. We know he has power. He's a guy who's worthy of getting a bunch of plate appearances over the course of a season when he's right. Now, he was not right to begin this season, but he has gotten more right as the season has gone on. And you can't argue with the recent results. Again, four home runs over his last three games as an ad's number one batter. Now, Schwarber did have a base running boo-boo on Monday night, although it was, in a lot of ways, an understandable base running boo-boo. So I mentioned that one-out RBI single by Schwarber in the Nats two-run third. He, in that inning, got thrown out by a mile in trying to advance to third on a one-out single by Trey Turner. What happened was Turner hit the single up the middle. The Pirates center fielder Brian Reynolds bobbled the baseball, but Reynolds recovered very quickly and then made a great throw to third to get Schwarber. So it didn't look good, that's for sure. But it was kind of a worst case scenario because Schwarber was rounding second, was slowing down, you know, because he was going to come back to the bag. He saw Reynolds bobble the baseball and then took off for third. And then it played out in like a best case scenario way from a Pittsburgh perspective where Reynolds recovered super quickly and then made a dynamite throw to third base to get Schwarber. So it was not a good moment, but it is an understandable moment. I mean, I think you can forgive the aggression in a spot like that. This was not what Victor Robles did on Saturday night. Those are two very different things. And again, Schwarber, two more hits, a home run, and an RBI single to go with a walk out of that leadoff spot on Monday night. Now, beyond Schwarber, there wasn't much happening with the Nationals offensively on Monday night. The other run was scored on a Juan Soto two-out first pitch RBI single in the Nats' two-run third inning. Okay, but this was another game in which Soto did not have an extra base hit. Speaking of not hitting for power, Trey Turner had another game without an extra base hit. One for four was Turner with a single, a one-out single in the Nats' two-run third. Turner was the number two batter. Soto was the number three batter in the lineup. Uh, Victor Robles, the number eight batter, did have a leadoff double in the Nats' one-run third. Okay, that was good. Josh Bell, as a number four batter, did have a single and a walk, a two-out five-pitch walk in the bottom of the third, a leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth. But otherwise, just not a lot happening with the Nationals offensively in the game. We did have a bit of a controversy in the game. Bottom of the eighth, Josh Harrison, the former Pirate, drawing a two-out full count hit by pitch. Things got testy after that. Harrison, I thought, overreacted to this. He made a big deal out of this, which I didn't really think was worthy of a big deal. Now, I will concede, we don't know what was being said between Harrison and the Pirates, so I don't know if some stuff was said that really ticked off Josh, but just on the surface, watching it, it did not seem necessary. Josh Harrison getting all bent out of shape the way that he ended up getting bent out of shape. So it was not a great game offensively for the Nationals again this season, but it was another very good game for the Nats when it came to their pitching. And the Nationals pitching right now is on a roll. And no doubt, the recent opposition has had a lot to do with this. The San Francisco Giants, even though they are the top team in the National League, are not a great batting team. We certainly saw that over the course of four games and three days over the weekend. And the Pirates, as mentioned, are one of the worst teams in baseball. But still, Credit the Nationals pitching for another good job 
on Monday night. Two runs allowed over the course of the game, and John Lester was the starting pitcher, and while John Lester did his John Lester thing of putting a lot of guys on the base paths, John Lester also did his John Lester thing of minimizing the damage. Ultimately, two runs in five and a third innings. You take that in a heartbeat right now with where Lester is at in his career. Now, he only had two strikeouts. He did give up six hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles. He did issue a walk. He did have to throw 86 pitches over the five and a third innings. Lester allowed a run in the top of the second on a one-out solo homer to Kevin Newman, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. Lester, though, then gave up a two-out walk, followed by a two-out single, but he ended up only giving up the one run in the inning. The other run off Lester came in the top of the sixth, thanks to a leadoff double by Jacob Stallings, who scored on a one-out RBI sack fly that was allowed by Wander Suero. So Lester wasn't even on the mound when the other run charged to him was scored. By the way, on that RBI sack fly, an atrocious throw by Juan Soto. All right, let's just be honest about this. Soto made a really bad throw to home on that RBI sack fly. The throw was way wide. It was an Eric Gonzalez one-out RBI sack fly that tied the game at two in the top of the six. Now, Soto has overall been good defensively in right field this season. He came into the game plus three defensive runs saved in right on the year. So I don't want to crush Soto for this. Guys are going to have bad moments. You do wonder with Juan Soto, remember, right, he dealt with that left shoulder strain. To what extent might that still be a problem for him? Because again, that throw was not close. But Lester, ultimately, another good job for him. And John Lester now, over nine starts this season, has an ERA of 409. Now, you don't throw a parade over that. But again, for a guy who was set up to be your number four starter and for a guy who had been really bad for the Chicago Cubs each of the previous two seasons, I think you take that. A 4.09 ERA for Lester over nine starts. And his whip on the year is 148. Again, he's putting a lot of guys on the base paths, but Lester does that veteran thing. You know, he's got that savviness to him to where guys may get on base, but those guys don't cross home plate. And Lester did that again in this outing on Monday night. The Nats bullpen was very good again in this 3-2 victory over the Pirates in Nationals Park on Monday night. Four Nats relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings. Now, uh, Wander Suero did allow the inherited runner to score in the top of the six, but he also got the final two outs in the top of the six. Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless top of the seventh with two strikeouts. Tanner Rainey tossed a scoreless top of the eighth, which featured a very nice defensive play by Starling Castro at third base. Now, Castro, again, was not good offensively in this game. Number seven batter, 0 for 4, left three men on base. But Castro, in that top of the eighth, made a very nice short hop pick to start a 5-4-3 double play for the final two outs in the inning. So I did want to credit Starling Castro for that. But back to Rainey. So Tanner Rainey was in a really bad way just last week. That 12-6 loss at the Philadelphia Phillies on Sunday, June 6th, that was that bullpen game for the Nats. Rainey in that game gave up three runs in the bottom of the sixth. That outing ballooned his ERA for the season to 10-57. But Rainey since then, four appearances, four scoreless and hitless innings. Tanner Rainey hopefully is settling in to being the pitcher he was supposed to be this season. Now, you need to see more than just four consecutive good appearances. But, you know, with Tanner Rainey, it's never been a question about the stuff. He's got major league stuff. His stuff plays. It's one of the reasons why he was so good last season. He's been very up and down so far this year. And I think with Rainey, a lot of this is confidence. He just needs to trust his stuff and not be afraid to throw strikes. And, you know, I know sometimes you're trying to throw strikes and the ball's just not going there because your command is off. So uh, it's not necessarily all mental with Tanner Rainey. But to me, it's like, you have A-level stuff, man. Trust it. Go out there and be the dominant reliever we know you can be. And we know you can be that because we saw it last season. 
And I think we've seen a lot more of that here over these last four appearances. So good to see that from Tanner Rainey. And then another guy who's really settled in nicely here lately is Brad Hand. He on Monday night tossed a perfect top of the ninth. You know, Brad Hand started off the season really well, then was in a rut, but now he's back to pitching well. Brad Hand now, over his last 10 appearances, a mere two earned runs in 10 and the third innings. And the Nats need Hand to be good, just like the Nats need Rainey to be good. A, given that Daniel Hudson is on the 10-day injured list, and B, given that this Nationals rotation still is not providing much in the way of length. And speaking of the Nats rotation, Max Scherzer is going to miss his next turn in the rotation. Monday was bullpen session day for Scherzer. It was to be the most significant test yet of the groin tweak that caused him to throw just 12 pitches and record just one out in his last start, which came in that one nothing loss to the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park on Friday night. Max ended up cutting short the bullpen session on Monday due to the groin still bothering him. Now, the good news is the groin is getting better, and it's not a given that the Nats are going to put Max on the 10-day injured list, but the bad news is Max did say that he will not be ready for his next scheduled start, which was set to take place on Wednesday for game three of this series against the Pirates. So it does look like that Wednesday game will be started by Paolo Espino or just be a bullpen game for the Nats or maybe be both. But Max Scherzer is going to miss his next start. Now, hopefully it's just one outing that he misses. I do believe that if Max has to miss an outing, missing an outing against the Pirates is what you want. You know, you don't want Max missing a game against the New York Mets or the Atlanta Braves or anybody like that. And what's maybe a silver lining to all this is Max not pitching on Wednesday means he potentially could pitch this coming weekend against the Mets. The Nats are going to be facing the Mets in a four-game series over the course of three days. Game one Friday night, games two and three on Saturday in a doubleheader, and then game four Sunday afternoon. So if you can work Max into that Mets series, this actually works out quite well. You know, you'd rather have Max pitch against the Mets than pitch against the Pirates. You should not need Max Scherzer to win the series against the Pirates. And the Nets need to win this series. And the Nets really need to sweep this series. The Nets need all the help they can get right now in terms of piling up wins. And that's dug themselves a hole with this bad start to the season. A series like this against the lowly Pirates is a get-right series, a get-fat-and-happy kind of series. Nats, thankfully, did get the win on Monday night. Although, again, it wasn't exactly easy. Game two against the Pirates at Nationals Park, Tuesday night at 7.05. Patrick Corbin will start for the Nats against the aforementioned Tyler Anderson. And again, speaking of piling up wins and getting fat and happy, if Patrick Corbin can't get right against the lowly Pirates, then what exactly are we doing here with Patrick Corbin? He has been really bad so far this season. He's been especially bad lately over his last five starts. 18 runs allowed in 26 innings on 32 hits and 12 walks. His ERA for the season is at 621. His whip for the season is at 151. He's not been good. The Pirates are not good. Corbin has got to go out there on Tuesday night and assert himself. Be the Patrick Corbin we saw in 2019, because we have not seen that Patrick Corbin since 2019. He was not good last season. He's not been good so far this season. If he can't have success against the Pirates, and I don't know what to say anymore about Patrick Corbin, and I think you really worry at that point about the six-year, $140 million contract. But I'd like to think that Corbin can go out there on Tuesday night and have himself a good outing. One more item regarding the Nats, and it is exciting news. Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post reporting on Monday that Nationals prospects Cade Cavalli and Matt Cronin are being promoted from High A Wilmington 
to Double A Harrisburg. We've talked about Cavalli. He is the Nationals' top organizational prospect, one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball. Cronin is a reliever who's done very well so far this year, 28 strikeouts in 14 and two-thirds innings. And I will just say this, especially about Cavalli. When it comes to highly touted prospects, they almost always end up debuting at the major league level sooner rather than later. So whatever you think the timetable is, expedited. The thinking on Cade Cavalli had been, well, maybe next season we see him at the major league level at some point. I say now this about Cade Cavalli. I would not be stunned at all if you see him this season at the major league level. He was outstanding for the high A Wilmington Blue Rocks. We'll see how he does for the AA Harrisburg Senators. But if he continues to kill it and the Nationals, let's say, make a charge toward a postseason spot, and need a spot start in the middle of September in a big game, I would not be stunned at all if Cade Cavalli is called upon. Just something to think about. These top prospects always make their major league debuts sooner than anybody thinks. And Cade Cavalli right now, make no mistake, is a top prospect, not just for the Nationals, but among all prospects in baseball. We've discussed the bad state of the Nationals farm system. The one shining star right now in terms of a true top elite prospect in the sport, is Cade Cavalli, and he is justifiably being promoted to the AA level. So the Nats on Monday night had a one-run win. The Orioles on Monday night, a one-run loss, a 4-3 loss at the Cleveland Indians in game one of a four-game series. As yes, the O's lost another road game. The O's now have lost a franchise record 16 consecutive road games. The Orioles' last road win was the John Means no-hitter at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. You and I, my friends, we are speaking on Tuesday, June 15th. The O's still have not won a road game since May 5th. O's now are an American League worst 22-43 and on the season. The only thing to really be mindful of from this game was the start from Dean Kramer. He was back. The O's on Monday recalled Kramer from AAA Norfolk, to which he had been optioned on May 26th, of having struggled over his previous two starts. And I thought Kramer was actually pretty good in this game on Monday night. Now, the final line was not good. Four runs, three earned in five and a third innings. But he only gave up four hits, all of which were singles. He issued no walks. He did issue a hit by pitch, did throw a wild pitch, and did only have two strikeouts on 71 pitches. It's not like he was great, but there was a good bit of bad luck involved in this outing for Dean Kramer. The Indians had a three-run first. In that inning, you had a full count Jose Ramirez RBI single on which the Orioles left fielder DJ Stewart broke back and fell down. I mean, it just stumbled. The ball ended up dropping just a few feet in front of him. So like, that's a play that goes down as a ribby single, but that's not a hit that Kramer gave up. That's a play that should have been made. And then after that inning, Kramer threw four scoreless innings. So three-run Indians first, yes, but then came four scoreless innings from Dean Kramer. He gave up an unearned run in the bottom of the sixth, which featured two Orioles errors, a pass ball, and the run scoring on a one-out RBI double off Orioles reliever Tyler Wells. So Kramer wasn't even pitching when that other run ended up being scored. But some really bad defense by the Orioles on Monday night. The stumble by DJ Stewart in the Indians' three-run first, and then that one-run Indian six during which you had two Orioles errors 
and a pass ball. So I did think that this start was a step forward for Dean Kramer. There's still a ways to go clearly for him to pan out in the way that the Orioles want him to pan out. But off what we had seen from him over his previous two major league starts, what went down on Monday night was an improvement. Kramer's last major league start came in the 7-4 loss at the Minnesota Twins on May 25th. Five runs in four innings. He in that game threw just 51 of 94 pitches for strikes. His start prior to that one, a 10-1 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 20th. Four runs in three innings. And in that game, just 35 strikes versus 28 balls. So he had been giving up runs. He had had a hard time throwing strikes. Kramer was better on Monday night. And the Orioles need Kramer to be better. This is one of the guys who the O's got from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the package for Manny Machado in July 2018. This is just Kramer's age 25 season. And especially with John Means on the Orioles 10-day injured list right now, the starting pitching really is about these three young guys, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, and Bruce Zimmerman. What do they do? How do they look? Are these guys true building blocks for the future? You know, Means is someone who is really good I think he is someone who can be here for years to come because he is under team control for years to come, but he's older than these other three guys. These other three guys, Kramer, Aiken, and Zimmerman, these are the guys to be tracking truly when it comes to Orioles starting pitching in this season. As I have said, it's not about wins and losses for the Orioles. It's about how individual players are doing, how potential building blocks are doing. And these are three guys you certainly want to be following right now if you're an Orioles fan. So I did think that in that way, Monday night was a good night because Kramer was better, albeit, you know, relatively speaking, okay? I mean, there's still a lot more that we have to see from Dean Kramer. Game two for the O's at the Indians, Tuesday night at 7-10. Matt Harvey gets the start. Close your eyes, hide the women and children. Uh, Matt Harvey is in a very bad way right now, and it's a borderline miracle that he remains in the Orioles rotation. If John Means was healthy, I'm not sure that Matt Harvey would still be in the Orioles rotation. His last outing, that 14-1 loss to the New York Mets at Camden Yards last Wednesday night. Harvey in that game smashed for a fifth time in six starts, seven runs in three innings. Harvey over his last six starts has allowed 31 earned runs in 19 and two-thirds innings. His first seven starts of the season, the guy had an ERA of 360. He was a nice story. Since then, it's been a nightmare. His ERA over 13 starts this season is 741. His whip over those 13 starts this season is 168. Now, the manager, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame press conference after Harvey's last outing, did say, quote, there's no talk of taking Harvey out of the rotation, end quote. I have a hard time believing that. But if that was true, there's no way that that should continue to be true should Harvey get rocked again in this game at the Indians on Tuesday night. We shall see. As I have said with Matt Harvey, he was here to be fixed and then to be flipped. The notion with Harvey was never to keep him here for the long haul. It was, okay, he's a reclamation project. See what you can do with him. And maybe you can trade him at some point this season for some more prospects. Well, if you can't fix him, you can't flip him. If you can't flip him, there's no point in having him. And I just don't know at this point how you can have any real faith that you're going to be fixing Matt Harvey. Again, the guy's ERA is 741. We'll see what he does on Tuesday night at the Indians. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Wednesday's installment of the pod, a very special guest, Brandon Thorne, the author of the Trench Warfare Newsletter, 
He's one of the best evaluators of offensive line and defensive line play in the NFL. He is a massive Jonathan Allen fan. We'll explain why and talk about a number of Washington's other defensive and offensive linemen. Also, we'll discuss the game twos for the Nationals against the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park and the Orioles at the Cleveland Indians. What's more likely, Patrick Corbin pitching well or Matt Harvey pitching well? I'll let you decide. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. With no recall.